the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this machine and do the other thing. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday afternoon space show program. And I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much. We appreciate your tuning in for this Sunday program. This will be a full-length space show program. A couple of other things I want to point out. Uh, We're working with a – we're demonstrating a new headset that was sent to me. And I don't think I'm going to keep it. I'm going to tell them their headset's no good. Uh, but I am committed to using it for this particular show, and um, um, I, I hope what I'm hearing is not coming out on the on the tape. And I do apologize for that. But uh, this is a process of modernizing some of the audio equipment and uh, going with a much newer, uh, rather than 25-year-old headset, uh, has been a project of ours. And this company has sent me one to try out. And I don't think it's very good. So you can listen to the show today and uh, tell me what you think of it. And, John, you tell me what you think of it later on because you're the guest and, and, and you're the focus of the show. Um, now, back to the show. The toll-free number today is 866-687-7223. Email is drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And uh, don't forget, we have a newsletter. It's going to go out 6 a.m. West Coast time tomorrow. Uh, and it is all set. And uh, all of the website newsletters and the upcoming show menu are set. But we have a new thing that I need to call your attention to. Sometimes I cannot confirm a show for a variety of reasons with a specific guest. So I start the confirmation process on Wednesday or Thursday, the week before they're scheduled to be on the program. And they're supposed to send me all their bio and their relevant information in time to post it for the weekend, and then I don't hear from them. And then I send reminder number two, reminder number three, and then they start coming in with, you need to RSVP this, you need to send me this information. If you can't be on the show, let me know. We'll change the date, but I need to fill it with someone else. And sometimes I still don't know. And sometimes their reasons for the delay are very, very legitimate. And we end up working it out to do the show uh, at the scheduled time anyway. And sometimes they just conk out. You know, you'd have to get inside their head to understand why they pick a date and then they disappear. So uh, what I'm doing now is when I cannot confirm a guest for a show... Uh, On the mail order, not on the mail order, on the email newsletter, I'm putting a line in that says, please confirm show via upcoming show menu. 
And then uh, for everyone else in the website menu, uh, I keep the upcoming show and the website menu current. So if the guest is going to change or if the show is going to be uh, canceled for some reason, you will see it on the upcoming show menu and you will see it on the website menu. So I urge you to check uh, if a show is marked as possibly changing, and I am marking them now if I'm not getting on-time confirmations. And that way um, you won't be surprised uh, if a different guest is on rather than who you expected, or if the show is canceled, you will have that information. And uh, I, I hope you will remember this, but the two current ways of keeping you posted on programs and guests are the upcoming show menu and the website uh, newsletter. I cannot do it currently with the email newsletter. That requires sending out an entirely different newsletter, and most of you don't want to be bothered with a second newsletter, and I'm sensitive to that. So that's just a little bit of notice for you. So for the coming week, our Tuesday show with Riley is one of those shows where I have so far been unable to confirm Riley's visit on Tuesday. So um, check the upcoming newsletter or the website newsletter uh, to see if that's changed, because once the email newsletter goes out at 6 a.m. in the morning, uh, any changes won't be recorded on that newsletter, and if you rely on it, you'll miss those changes. But that's just uh, a little bit of tidbit. A uh, very interesting show is coming up on Friday with the curator of the Smithsonian Air and Space, Dr. Matt Schindel. He has a terrific book called For the Love of Mars, and I've been going through it, and it should be a terrific show. And many of you know Gary Barnhart uh, from NSS, ISDC, lots of other places. He has some innovative SSP ideas with the space station when it starts to retire. He was going to be on about a month and a half ago. He got sick, but Gary is back with us. And then um, I do have scheduled, this is another one of those ones where the guest has not responded, the uh, director and CEO of the new Las Vegas spaceport, which is actually in Pahrump, Nevada. And I have talked to him on the phone, and he is he picked August 1st, so I'll be working to confirm that. So that's a little bit up in the air. And um, then uh, I'll just point out that Mark Bell, the CEO of Turan Orbital, is coming back on the program. And as we come up on August 8th, I'll be cluing you into good get guests for August. We have lots of openings for August, so I will now start aggressively filling those dates. If you have uh, guests that you think would be great and you think they might be available for August, please email them to me. And uh, I'm sorry I'm eating into our guest time. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, don't forget that uh, we are listener-supported radio, and we're a 501c3 nonprofit with one giant LEAP Foundation. Listener-supported means those of you listening to the show, participating in it, you're the ones who keep us going. You're the ones that enable us to have terrific guests on the show, as we're having today and as we most always do have. The easiest way to support us is PayPal, and there is a PayPal button or link in the upper right corner of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. For those of you who use Zelle, the email address is david at one 
giantleapfoundation.org. And for those of you old school mailing checks, please make it payable to one Giant Leap Foundation and mail it to our Las Vegas offices. Uh, that address is on our website. I believe it's on the PayPal button, too. And if you need help with binding it or something like that, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Don't forget our sponsorship program with banner ads and PR messages on the longer program, which I will read at the end of this program. Uh, our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis Astrox, Dr. Ben Arroyo with his terrific lunar development book, and the Space Foundation. These sponsors are incredibly important to us, and we would not be doing this show without their help. And if you want to be a sponsor, email me at Dr. Space at the Space Show so I can tell you about our sponsorship program. Today, John Strickland is back with us, and most of you know who John is. He doesn't really need an introduction, but he's been an active member of space and science-related organizations. Uh, are you sitting down? Wait for this number. Since 1961. And then he joined the American Rocket Society as a student. In 1976, he joined the National Space Institute and in L5, and those are the parents of the National Space Society. He's the founder of the Austin, Texas Space Frontier Society and has been its chairman uh, from 1981 to now. And his full bio goes on and on for, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs. Plus, at the end of his bio, I have a listing of all of his current and most recent publications, probably going back to even older publications. So I urge you to not only read his full bio on our Spatial Bio page, but also check out his publications. You may have missed a few of them, and you may want to uh, access them and read them. But we're talking to John today. Uh, we're talking about how and what it's going to look like and all sorts of things related to the sequence for doing a terraforming of Mars. John, welcome back to the Space Show. How are you? Oh, fine. Can you hear all right? Yep. Okay, if you can speak a little louder, it would be helpful. Okay, I'll lean closer to the, to the microphone. How's that? Yeah, maybe if you lean closer to Mars, that'll really help. Can you do that? <laughs> well, not, not yet. But we're oh. waiting on Elon to help us in that area. Okay, so before we get to the sequence of how to terraform Mars, there's a lot of opposition out there to terraforming Mars. How do you support and justify and make the case for terraforming Mars. So let's start out with making the case for terraforming Mars. Well, there's a lot of different ways of doing that, but the, es the essence is that if you have space settlements rotating or, or pressurized on the Moon and Mars, you're providing more places for people to live and win a small number of plants and animals to, to go along with them. But if you really are interested in life itself, we don't know if there are any other planets in the entire universe right now, of course, that with life on them. It, it's probable, but we don't know for sure. So the, 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 what, the, what they're balancing is dead rocks on Mars and the possible potential 
of microbes deep underground on Mars, which probably wouldn't really be affected by what's going on in the surface anyways, uh, which could even be relatives of Earth life, for all we know, against uh, a backup planet for the majority of living things on Earth. I don't know that we could support every species on Earth, but over a period of many decades, once it was terraformed, you could transfer carefully uh, many, many species, uh, uh, plants and animals, fungi, uh, uh, the appropriate bacteria and viruses, to Mars, perhaps leaving out poison ivy and mosquitoes that bite and things like that. But, uh, and of course, in, in real world, there's always people who, who try to ruin it for everybody else. So I, I said, somebody will, someday will try to smuggle poison ivy seeds to Mars and scatter them around. This is human nature for a very small minority, but what can you do? So, the, that's the basic issue. Even if there are microbes, Deep underground on Mars, you're balancing microbes against all the incredible Earth life that exists. If you watch the British Nature shows that, that cover the, uh, uh, marine life and, and life in different habitats on land, it's just staggering. It's your diversity. And if something happened to the Earth, like a planet killer asteroid or whatever, uh, that could all vanish in a heartbeat. So it's not it's not a high probability, but it's something that could happen. So it's you know if you if you don't like tornadoes, it's good to have a tornado shelter. If you don't like planet sterilizer asteroid impact, it's good to have a backup planet. So that's the that's the main argument. Uh, then there's also the business about even some space advocates say that terraforming is grandiose. So I say, if you're going to modify an entire planet's atmosphere, it's by necessity grandiose. And if there, if there are some people who are opposed to things for reasons that we don't really understand, like 25 years ago or more, uh, back in the 80s, they started this uh, captive breeding for the California condors to keep the species alive. They were down to 22 condors when they started, and the radicals, fought politically to stop the program and just let them die peacefully. That as a result of the program was finally pushed through, we now have about 500 plus live condors. The majority of them are living in the wild. And they supervise the condors and we're learning how to protect them from lead and, and, uh, and bullets and other things that could poison them and they, if they eat an animal that's uh, it's, been shot with lead bullets. And we're, we're learning how to do it, and eventually we may be able to uh, reduce the effort if, if we can keep them going. So that's a couple of the aspects that are, that are comparable in terms of the credit. I have an email for you already, and I know we're a little bit off the topic, but so after this email question, we're, we're going to get back to our, our planned topic, okay? But Todd in San Diego said, um, John, here's the problem. Let's assume that in the course of the years or decades or centuries it takes to terraform Mars, some public funds have been used to do this. How do I make sure that either myself or my descendants get picked to go to Mars? Because if I'm being asked to pay for the damn thing, 
I want to make sure that my family and I and my descendants get to go. So how do we assure that? Otherwise, to hell with it, and I wouldn't want to see my tax dollars go for that. Well, I would say that's a rather selfish attitude. I <laughs> ever ever to go into space myself, but I want to see people be able to go into space and do large-scale operations which will help all of mankind. I'm 80 years old, and so I don't expect to go into space even in, even in a suborbital ride. I wouldn't want to spend the money, but being able to see the television live coverage of what's going on in space, that's fine. And vicariously watching what the rovers are doing in Mars, discovering uh, uh, amazing things almost every month, uh, is, 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 is fulfills my interest, and it gives me a, a sense of what... Remember, Mars is a whole planet. It's not one place. So it... it, it if you were to go to pick people to go to Mars, there would be a specific criteria that you could say, well, I want to be on the band, but I can't play a, no play a note. That's the kind of attitude I would not agree with. So, if somebody wants something, doesn't mean they're going to get it. So everyone pays and the elites get to go. Well, <laughs> the elites would be people who are, no. <laughs> you know, we can't change human nature, right, unless we're... We're, we lobotomize everyone. So, uh, assuming we're, we don't have a, uh, a robot mother to lobotomize everyone in the future, uh, from the story Mechanical Mice, uh, gosh, it must be almost 80 years old now, uh, the, uh, it's possible to, to, to not have to worry about that kind of a problem. So, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. Okay. You're going to be picking people who are qualified because they've done the work, school work or, or otherwise, to, to have the skills needed to go there, and eventually people will be born there and eventually be able to take a tourist trip there, especially once we get fusion power. So everyone is on an equal scale. And, and, our, and if for human nature, a favor certain people, as we see, is happening in the news all the time. You know, there's nothing the individual person can do about that. That's reality. You know, all right. deal with it. Start us out. How do we start out terraforming Mars? And I, can I post your sequence paper on the blog after the show? Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can post that. Okay. Uh, you might also post that cover picture that shows the terraform Mars, where I give credit to uh, uh, Kevin Gr uh, Gill from uh, GPL, who does this marvelous job of creating uh, a cl realistic clouds on different planets. Well, I, I can't post that without his consent, so. Okay, oh, uh, anyway. But I'll post your sequence for full terraforming on Mars. I'll put that yes, up on the blog. I just sent you an update this morning. Yeah, that's the one I'm working with right now. I have that that's printed out in front of me. So, anyways, uh, so we're gonna, what we're going to focus on today is get oxygenating Mars. We, in the past, I did a show on providing the bulk of the air pressure on Mars, which is moving, um, I think it's two quadrillion tons of nitrogen, solid nitrogen to Mars, dumping into the atmosphere horizontally so it doesn't make any craters, and that would provide Mars with enough air pressure so that rain would fall clouds would form and, and creeks and rivers would flow 
washing the dust out of the air and washing most of the perchlorate out of the soil and filling filling some of the uh, seas and oceans again. So what we're going to focus today is the, the one step that would provide uh, a habitat for plants and animals, animals all over Mars is oxygen. Plants need oxygen too because they respire just like animals. But they also make oxygen. So if you have plants, they will use the oxygen at night primarily, and they'll produce it during the day during photosynthesis. So the issue is, um, again, that the, that the crucial is providing a backup place for life itself, and that you need oxygen to do that unless you just want an anaerobic biota like there existed before the oxygen revolution two billion years ago. It would have been weird, but it was almost all microbes. You wouldn't have any, uh, um, you know, uh, large-scale organisms at all. So I'm going to read this statement by um, Don Barker back in 2015. Uh, the settlement of Mars is probably the most viable endeavor. It would create a backup for life on Earth, in effect, in effect a global mitosis. Mars is the only destination whose environment and accessible natural resources efficiently enable permanent and sustainable human habitation off Earth. It's an article called The Mars Imperative. Um, so, so let's take a look at what we really need. We, if you want to have a gigantic nose arc, in effect, that doesn't have the, the nose arc problem of, of only being able to stay hold a few hundred animals at most, which is like uh, one millionth of the of the uh, uh, number of species on Earth. It's like, I don't know, 20 to 50,000 species of beetles alone, people have remarked that God seems to be very, uh, uh, I think, very favorable of beetles. Um, so, but you need a, a really large area so you can have thousands of species and thousands of organisms in each species to have genetic diversity. So what you need to start with is um, how much do you need? Uh, for normal breathing, humans need a three pounds per square inch of what we call oxygen partial pressure. That's just the pressure of the oxygen gas itself. So uh, because Mars has lower gravity than the Earth does, it's about uh, 38% of Earth's gravity. Uh, needs uh, uh, 2.66 times more gas than on the Earth to provide the same amount of pressure. So if you didn't have, uh, um, if Mars had the same gravity as the Earth, you'd get away with about 300 trillion tons of oxygen. But because of the lower gravity, you need 800 trillion approximately. Doesn't it, there's an exact number doesn't really matter. But 800 trillion tons is a good round number. So, and you really want to have enough pressure so that people aren't gasping for breath as if you were visiting uh, uh, Peru or someplace like that or one of these high altitude mining places where it's like 17,000 feet. But those people are adapted to it. Most people, some people get uh, altitude sickness at 9,000 feet. Uh, so, there, in the, now remember, in, uh, in nature, there are no oxygen mines. 
we have a number of places we can consider nitrogen mines, Pluto, Triton, even Venus uh, is a potential oxygen mine if you can skim the air off of Venus and separate the oxygen from the CO2. It might be quite possible to do it, but you had an atomic-powered uh, skimmer, skimmer vehicle that we could just go and go and go and then take it to Mars. Um, so what we want to mine on Mars in areas around the polar caps, not initially the polar caps because we want to make sure that the climate scientists have at least uh, multiple decades to make ice cores uh, to get the past climate data of Mars so we know about the past on Mars as well as about the present. And so we want about one quadrillion tons of Mars ice. There's even much more than that. Um, but that would be the same amount as would be an, on land uh, 1,000 by 1,000 kilometers by one kilometer deep. So if, it, uh, if you had one, uh, one kilometer deep over that area, that is 1,000 trillion tons or one quadrillion tons of ice. And, of course, some areas... It won't be pure, so we're, we're assuming you're going to, you'd have to mine more if it's impure ice, like with gravel or clay or sediment mixed into it. Any, any questions? No, keep going. I'll read the questions as they come in or phone calls out. I'll, I'll just let them come in when you take a pause. Okay. So the, the, all, the, all the stuff that we're doing, including moving the nitrogen to Mars and, and converting the Mars water, Oxygen and hydrogen depends on having fusion power. And everybody said it was like, you know, always 50 years away, but we've got, got like a dozen companies, several of have more than a billion dollars of investments that are building machines that are steadily rising in their, in their three numbers, the uh, temperature, pressure, and duration of their plasma. And at some, at some point, I think they're going to reach, reach the, the critical number. That's you know, if you have a, plant, a, a fusion plant, typically on Earth, you build uh, a power plant for one uh, for one gigawatt. That's a thousand megawatts. Well, uh, there's no reason you can't build a plant that would put out a terawatt. You just scale it up. And once you understand how to do it, and you, we want to figure out how to do it most efficiently in terms of the minimum amount of material, because all that stuff is going to have, will have to be made out of metal. Mind on Mars. I suspect that the Mars settlers themselves will play a very large part in the terraforming effort because they would like to be able to walk outside without a spacesuit too. So uh, the, the method that's used, you have these really, very large fusion plants, and you have gigantic um, hydrolysis plants that would get the power from the fusion plant, and these are spaced out over Mars in different areas, so maybe each one would generate, would, would uh, mine an area, say, of a couple hundred square miles or, or square kilometers. The total area that you'd need to mine if it were with a kilometer deep is one million square kilometers. So the water rate hydrolysis of that amount, it's maybe like six, six million, 6.3 million watt hours to electrolyze one metric ton and you scale the scale that up, so it's uh, six point uh, kilowatts, six point three megawatt hours. Electrolyze one metric ton 
and the, on the Earth may only have half a billion years left before it gets too hot, and we'll have to create a sunshade for it. So uh, even if humans vanish tomorrow, this biosphere of Mars will last as it is now for at least 100 million years or longer. That's, that would be quite an achievement. And it would take approximately 200 to 250 years to complete the, the, the uh, creation of the new atmosphere. It's, it all depends on how much people are willing to spend to, uh, to make it happen. If you spend twice as much, it'll happen twice as fast. If you spend a quarter as much, it'll happen four times slower. So, you know, it, it's a matter of what the what human wants to do in the future. But the Mars settlers are, will, will, will be fully behind this and working to see it happen. So, you know, it's, it's, you know there's a lot of things that we would like to do that are physically impossible in, unless you have magic physics. Well, I don't believe in magic physics. I can't say it will never happen. But uh, right now we don't have it. So we, do, we, do, we can do an amazing amount of stuff with the, with the technical tools that we have already. How long do you think it takes to have a, an Earth-like atmosphere on Mars? Well, again, basically, Earth-like meaning nitrogen and oxygen. Uh, we'll get into that when we get into the sequence of, of it. Uh, so, uh, without skipping over, without really going into the numbers, people would, would their eyes would glaze over if I went into all the numbers. But I, I want to call the, these plants, which I call it a system of plants, 7,000 plants scattered all over Mars, mostly around in the areas around the polar caps with this huge amounts of, of ice that my brother uh, created a term for it like almost 30 years ago called the ice regolith. But nobody picked it up because his paper wasn't published. Uh, it was, uh, even Carl Sagan thought it was good paper, but the, the, the journal that Watt was going to publish it never did. He never got the credit for, the, for creating the term. But the ice regolith is like the regolith of the moon except it has a lot of permafrost in it. The permafrost is ice and a lot of what used to be ocean water and water in, in the soil turned into permafrost on Mars. So that, yeah, that's where it is now. So um, let's see here. We'll, let's get back to, down to the, the total amount of energy. Uh, the amount of, it is, is really staggering, but as, as one example... Uh, the, I call this the Edgar Rice Burroughs atmosphere plant. Because if you remember in the, in the John Carter story, there was an atmosphere plant uh, in the story. I think it was at the end of the story. And people were gasping their breath as the atmosphere was thinning out. Now, of course, that's fictional. That would be the reverse of in the, in the um, one with Schwarzenegger where they, they replenish the atmosphere in a few seconds. Well, that would... Kind of blow Mars apart if they could physically do that. It'd be incredibly violent, more violent than an asteroid strike. So, but it, it may, it, because uh, Burroughs had this vision at the time, they thought that Mars' atmosphere must be very thin, and it's much thinner than they thought for life. So I called the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, uh, atmosphere plant. And it, it's a system of plants, 7,000 of them. Now, you could be any number. The number of plates would more depend on what would be the best efficient use of the materials 
to build the plan. So, okay, let's see. Some people will say, well, you're producing all this energy, um, which is equivalent to about 3% of the sunlight the whole Earth gets. But remember, Mars only gets about half as much energy, and this amount is, uh, is only a few percent uh, of, of maybe it's about 6% of the energy that Mar Mars gets. So it would, not, it would not cook Mars, believe me. You, at each plant, you would have to have heat management to make sure that the oxygen that you're, that you're releasing carries away most of the heat and going straight up like a smoke jet, but there's no debris in it. It's pure oxygen. But it could be hot oxygen because it would cool off. <laughs> so, let's see. So the, the mining operation to use the water would cover only about one, one, hundred and one part and 150 parts of uh, the surface of Mars. So it's not going to destroy Mars. And if you make these mining areas near the poles, which may be covered with uh, water eventually anyway, you could have a kilometer deep ocean over, over these areas, which would make pretty nice uh, 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 ocean areas. You do need uh, fusion power. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if you, the, the proper kind of fusion I would like to see is, is what they call a neutronic fusion, which means it produces no neutrons. The um, boron hydrogen fusion. There's one company working on that. Uh, they're building their next machine now. Uh, it's boron hydrogen fusion, which produces no neutrons in the fusion reaction at all. Any more? Any questions yet? No, I'll I'll I'll, I'll break in if if we're getting them. Okay. We're putting out so much information. It's probably hard for people to follow. Right. Well, that's why I'm leaving out all, all the numbers. Just giving a few. Okay, so um, I'm not going to go over the different kinds of, of hydrolysis, but it's true that people are working on ways of, of reducing the amount of energy that hydrolysis uses. Hydrolysis of turning water into oxygen and hydrogen is a very energy-intensive process. And if we can come up with a, either a more efficient process or one that is, is, that is catalytic, so it, it, it turns it, the water turns to oxygen and hydrogen without as much energy, then we could greatly reduce the amount of energy it would take uh, to, to do this. So, um, for example, if, you're, if you see a, a, like a copper mine or an, or an open pit mine, you don't just uh, dig a hole vertically and it leave a thousand foot high cliff or, or a kilometer high cliff. You build it in a series of terraces. So they would do the same thing with the ice. And you probably would have uh, um, ramps, mechanical ramps, carrying the ice and hoppers up to the fusion air, uh, to the fusion plant and the hydrolysis plant where it would have to be liquefied, purified, uh, and then fed into the fusion product. You need really pure water to, to do that. You can't just use muddy water, it would mess the whole system up. So, uh, let's see. Right now, because Mars, because all the, the pressure is so low, right now the pressure is one, is six one thousandth of the pressure on Earth, uh, six millibars. 
uh, or if sea level is one bar. So there's way, way too, too, too little pressure for liquid water to exist at all. It cannot rain. Uh, you you know, probably can't even have dew. If you have dew, it will immediately be dry. Water that exists is vapor or is, is ice, either underground or in the air. But we do occasionally see ice crystal clouds on Mars. Uh, so, let's see. If we, well, we can start getting into the sequence of, of terraforming now, so that I'm up to the point where uh, I'll get into sequence, and now I'll go back to how you actually introduce animals and plants to Mars. So we'll start going to the sequence, and if you remember the, one of the sessions uh, a number of months ago where we covered actually moving the nitrogen to Mars from Pluto or Triton or even Venus, you bring the nitrogen in containers typically of 100 million tons, and in, in, in small blocks, say a thousand times each, they could just be in a big baggie. But you spread these out and you aim it at the upper atmosphere of Mars, so it, it's moving horizontally. And it, it, it vaporizes and, and it, the, uh, the, uh, the nitrogen ice is crushed and turns into powder, and instantly the powder is all vaporized and it, it's incandescent. Nitrogen at probably five or ten thousand degrees, it then cools off and uh, is added to the to the Mars atmosphere. Ten such loads would deliver one billion tons of nitrogen uh, gas to Mars, and that's what you need to you need the nitrogen to provide air pressure. You probably could have a pure oxygen atmosphere that would have enough pressure. But if the slightest little spark from the lightning or anything else would create a, what I call a runaway planetary oxygen fire, which would even try to burn rocks if they had the slightest amount of oxidizable material in them. Anything oxidizable would burn like a sparkler in a firework. So we, we, you always have to have more nitrogen than oxygen. And the Earth, we have about five times more nitrogen and oxygen. We need to carefully investigate different amounts of uh, oxygen-nitrogen mixes. So I'm assuming about two to three times as much uh, oxygen, uh, nitrogen as oxygen in the mix. So the first thing you do is you have to build the thousands of fusion tugs and the carpet containers and the mining machines on Pluto or wherever you're mining the nitrogen from. Uh, so you can move the nitrogen to Mars. And this, you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of these machines. But we have thousands and thousands of very large machines all over the Earth. So it's not that different from what we're already doing. You're doing it in space where there's no friction. If you're moving a super tanker on the ocean, you have to overcome friction all the time. In space, you thrust, you change your orbit, and during your orbit transfer, there's no friction at all, and then once you reach the orbit you want, you have to uh, a boost again to circularize your orbit, to match your orbit with match your orbit with Mars, so you're not going too fast. You don't want to go. You don't want to hit the Mars atmosphere at too high a speed. Um, probably be hitting the Mars atmosphere about five kilometers per second or more. Hey, John. 
Yeah. You got a caller that wants to talk to you. Do you want to take his call or her call? Go ahead. Good, good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you? We thank you for your call. Uh, this is Marshall. We're in Okay. And uh, my key question is, uh, I assume you have to have a, some kind of meteorite uh, prevention uh, system to keep uh, asteroids, I presume from the asteroid belt, from uh, whacking Mars and blowing off most of the atmosphere. Well, okay, get, let's get back to that question that had been previously asked, which I probably didn't completely answer. The, the, the fallacy is that if you have no magnetic field and that on Mars, is it, well, because it lost it 4 billion years ago, that any atmosphere on Mars will, would be lost. And I, as I said, it would last at least 100 million years. The question is why? It's because when the sun was young, it, it, it was much more active. Its solar wind was much more active. And so when Mars had its magnetic field for the first half billion years, it did not lose too much, much atmosphere and probably had comparable amounts of atmospheric pressure and water to what the Earth does. Of course, Mars being smaller would have had a smaller amount of water. Uh, but after it lost its magnetic field, the Something happened to the core of Mars, and the magnetic field went bye-bye. And so the the, the sun's uh, higher activity level, only a billion years after the sun was born, which means it's still a young star, kept up. So for for probably a couple billion years, it was losing uh, uh, gas at a very high rate and then losing water at a, at a high rate, at least to, to some extent. And so... But now, it's only, if it's only losing 100 grams per second for the entire planet of Mars, you could do some simple calculations, calculate how many seconds there are in a year. And you could figure out how much, um, how much it would lose in a year. I probably did that calculation somewhere in the article. But, um, it, it doesn't amount to very much, uh, maybe a few million tons per year. So over millions of years, it would gradually add up, but not over – it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be anything that it would be urgent to do. But, yes, once you've got all this atmosphere, you've gone to these enormous efforts of recreating nitrogen, oxygen, atmosphere, or Mars that's enough for plants and animals to, to, to uh, breathe and use, Yes, you would want to build a uh, an artificial magnetic magnetic field, which would keep the rate of atmospheric loss because you're going to be increasing it by like what is it now? I think uh, a thousand something like a thousand times. No, uh, a hundred times, a hundred times greater roughly than it is now. So you might be losing it at a hundred times faster which would be a, a, a hundred times a hundred grams. It would be a million grams per second. So if you put the magnetic field into operation, uh, you probably could keep the, the loss rate down to what it is now. Even the Earth loses some amount of atmosphere, but its gravity field is so much stronger that, it, that I think the, the loss rate of the Earth is even smaller than the loss rate at margin. Did that answer the question? Well, uh, I was thinking of uh, uh, a major 
asteroid out of the asteroid belt hitting Mars would uh, cause a shockwave that would just, you know, like a super nuclear explosion just blow the atmosphere away. Well, we believe that four billion years ago uh, that, that such a really, really large impact that we it would be close to planet sterilizer level of impact hit the, the northern hemisphere of Mars, creating what we call the borealic depression. And there was probably a borealic ocean there when Mars was younger uh, after that impact. But the impact itself, of course, knocked out probably it's what knocked out the uh, magnetic field, disrupting the motion of uh, fluids in the core as it was so violent and making the whole northern hemisphere much lower than the, than the equator and southern hemisphere. Uh, but now we're learning how to uh, deflect asteroids. And so you would want a asteroid deflection system for Mars as well as you'd want one for Earth. And as long as there's humans around, who have, uh, if necessary, hydrogen bombs that can uh, uh, very carefully detonate it, not to disperse the asteroid, but to nudge it into a different path. Uh, we should be able to move, if we're given a, a, a long enough advance notice of a potential collision, uh, you can nudge it without dispersing it and uh, it, it simply make it miss the Earth completely and miss Mars completely. So that's one of the things we will have to we have to do. <coughs> okay, well there's a lot of clinking sounds on the line, so I'll let somebody else call in and hopefully the problem goes away. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye bye. Uh, we'll work on it. You have a couple more emails that I'm gonna to read to you. Uh Adrian uh San Diego says the mistaken idea by most people is that Mars lost its atmosphere because it's too small and has too little gravity to have held on to it. The fact is that its atmosphere was slowly blown off by the solar wind because it lost its magnetic field, and without this shield, the impact of the solar wind eroded the atmosphere. As an example, Titan has only 14% of Earth's gravity, and yet currently its nitrogen-rich atmosphere has 50% more pressure than Earth's at sea level, mainly because 95% of its orbit is within the magnetic field of Jupiter to protect it, and, of course, it is also further away from the Sun and Mars. No, and then, Titan is the moon of Saturn, not Jupiter. Yeah, and then... None of the, none of the jupiter Galilee satellites have anything more than an exosphere in terms of an atmosphere. Uh, you also have an email uh, from Tim in Huntsville. And he says, are you advising any major organization that is planning to go to Mars like NASA or SpaceX? No, no, the, but I published my articles, and uh, everyone is free to read them, and hopefully uh, people will pick up some ideas from some of the things that I've, that I've worked on. I'm retired, so I can work on what I want to. Okay. But, but let, me, let me just first the idea. Mars it's held on to its current atmosphere for something like 4 billion years. It hasn't lost much more with the rate. If you take a, a, a hundred gram, a hundred grams per second and extend that out, you see that, that it's held to hold on to the atmosphere quite well. 
the fact is that the leg of the magnetic field allows the solar wind to actually touch the top of the atmosphere, and the Mars dust will carry water molecules up to the top of the atmosphere, and the solar wind can grab them because it's right sometimes when it's active, when you have an active sun like it is now. Right now, it's probably stripping stuff away from Mars more. But if we had if we had a magnetic field uh, on Mars, it would keep the solar wind uh, thousands of miles above the top of the atmosphere, so the stripping rate would go way down. There would still be a very small amount of what they call genes escape, which is molecules that are going straight up faster than the, than the escape velocity of Mars. It would still be lost. But that's, it's a minor problem. It even happens on Earth. You have another uh, question. And uh, listeners, if you want to call and, and talk to John, uh, you can certainly do so. And uh, real quick, our toll-free number is, where's my page here? Clumsy David. Um, 866-687-7223. So this is Wagner in Chicago. And he says... I don't understand why we could not just recreate a magnetic field for Mars and let it develop its own Earth-like atmosphere. Okay, the problem there is, where's, where are you going to get the gas from? You need, uh, for the oxygen, uh, well, you need about 800 trillion tons of oxygen, and you need roughly uh, uh, 2 quadrillion tons of nitrogen, and... If that, if, because you're only losing 100 grams per second, if that air was somehow the, uh, uh, adhered to the surface of Mars, it long ago would have already come loose and be in the atmosphere. So just warming up at, uh, uh, Mars is not going to magically make uh, uh, oxygen and nitrogen appear. You have to make the oxygen and you have to deliver the nitrogen. To fix it, the nitrogen being out of Pluto, no, not, no life can exist unless you have a fluid anyway. So, um, nitrogen is one of those compounds that that, that doesn't appear in uh, in compounds too much unless it's a living compound or an explosive. So it, it tends to be a gas or a solid in in nature when it, when you find it by itself. So we do need to move the nitrogen in and, and, and make the oxygen. You have another caller. Um, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Tim from Huntsville. Hi, Tim. We just asked your question, so I don't know if you heard it or not. But uh, No, repeat. Do you repeat the question? It's your question that you emailed me. I just asked that to to John. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying you were asking me. No, no, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw. Yeah, I heard what he said. Mm-hmm. So go for it. You're on with uh, John. Did that make Did that make sense? Yeah. Well, I know he's talking. About, I know John's talking a lot about um, nuclear fusion, but I'm wondering why that not nuclear fusion, which we already have right now. Uh, the fission, uh, a nuclear fission, is just not nearly as efficient in terms of equipment as nuclear uh, fusion. And if you have uh, a neutronic fusion, it produces almost no radioactive byproducts at all and no neutrons, which means the fusion uh, will give us the ability to do terraforming, 
It would also give us the capability of, of doing interstellar travel. And uh, remember, Elon Musk's Starship stage is an incredibly impressive vehicle, but it's not a true interstellar Starship. He, he, he names things uh, in, in weird ways, but I, I forgive him for that because he's doing an incredible job with all the other things that he's doing. <laughs> Tim, well, go ahead. Thank you. Well, thing is about radiation is you know these things are pretty well shielded. It's very, you know, there's not a lot of radiation that leaks from them at all. Um, I mean, give you an example. Even our worst nuclear accident, Three Mile Island, there was no breach at all. It didn't. None of the radiation leaked, and I, often I, I you wind up getting more radiation from burning coal because all that coal has a little bit has trace elements of radioactive material in there, and it accumulates over time because you're having to burn. Uh, Tens of tens, hundreds of tons of coal to equal to one kilo of uranium. Well, you're you're right. Basically, I've been supporter of nuclear fission reactors almost all my life since I was an adult, and I would prefer to live next to a reactor than next to a coal plant. No question about it. But we're talking about materials efficiency, and if you if it takes ten or or hundred times more materials to build the, the uh, 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 nuclear reactors on Mars compared to the fusion reactors, obviously you want to go with the fusion reactors rather than the fission reactors. You also have to get uh, the nuclear fuel, and we're talking about a really large amount of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, energy production, and we're talking about, you know, a staggeringly large amount of energy. Uh, 3% of the, of the uh, the energy the Earth gets from the sun for about 200 years, uh, you know, so that would use up just about all of the fission nuclear uh, sources we have. We, we, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that. Now, if we don't get fusion, uh, it's going to be very difficult to do a lot of the things we're talking about, period. You know, it, it just won't happen. Somebody would have to come up with something completely different, but, but efficient enough before it can be done. Efficiency is really critical. Tim? Well, well uh, whenever we get the fusion reactor, sure, but, you know, we just, I just, I just tell, as a, you, you know, until we have those reactors, I would rather plan around what we have. Yeah, tell you fission is fine on, the, on Earth for the, for the uh, maybe 20 uh, terawatts of power the human race needs. But we're using not terawatts, we're using zettawatts, which is, you know, just orders and orders of magnitude more energy. So we need a much, much larger and more efficient energy source to do it. You probably should go, uh, go get into the sequence now. Uh, oh, Tim, are you through? What? Yeah, I'm through. Okay. okay. Uh, listeners, you too can give John a call, and, and uh, that phone number is 866-687-7223. We still have time if, if you want to chime in on anything or if you just want to sit back and listen. So, um, John, uh, go ahead. Okay, now we're going to cover the sequence of how you do a full terraforming of Mars. Now that the previous show I covered the nitrogen, moving the nitrogen to Mars, and in this show, I, I, I described how you provide Mars with the 800 trillion tons of oxygen, 
which is what you basically need for a breathable atmosphere for animals and plants. So the first thing you need is you need to start building the thousands of fusion-powered tugs and cargo containers and mining machines on Pluto or wherever you're mining it needed to move the nitrogen ice to Mars. There's a reason for you need to start doing that early on. So that you can also build a large sunshade or mirror at the Mars Sun L2 point. Probably it's probably the L1 point, I think. I don't know. How it's, oh, no, that's right. It would be the L2 point. To store the CO2 that you'd be removing, uh, some of it, um, and also to help Mars warm up. Because the CO2 will be very valuable as a source of carbon for Mars in the future because it will have organisms growing on it. And we want to add the CO2 back gradually, maintaining about one, one part per thousand of CO2 in the atmosphere. Right now, it's much, much more than that, so maybe almost 10 times too too high to breathe. Um, the, the, the mirror would be built so it's not aimed at Mars initially. We don't want to warm it up yet. So the next thing you do, you have these big mining machines that you built to mine the, the nitrogen. The same type of machine will mine the CO2 atmosphere off of the south polar cap, it's just dry ice. Every every two years, it deposits a layer of dry ice on the south pole. Uh, it accumulates during the southern winter. So you remove that ice layer. Uh, two years later, if you could, we don't know if you can remove the whole layer in two years, but in the next time, uh, half as much would be removed. And the current amount of CO2 on Mars is 50 trillion tons. When you've removed half of it, if you removed all of what's on the ice cap, uh, dry ice, you'd be down to 25. During the next cycle, if you could do it in two years, you'd be down to uh, 12 uh, trillion tons. During the next cycle, you'd be down to six, and then the next cycle, you're down to three, and you'd stop it and leave it at three trillion tons, because that's about the right amount to leave in the Mars atmosphere. But you don't want to throw it away. You want to store it in, in behind the sunshade, and so you can gradually add it back into the Mars atmosphere and keep the atmosphere at about uh, uh, a one part per thousand, which is, you know, ten parts per hundred. Or no, let's what is it? Uh, One-tenth of a part per hundred, that's right. Okay, so you need to move, remove 47 trillion tons of CO2. Okay, simultaneously... You begin adding about 50 trillion tons of nitrogen from the outer solar system so the air pressure will not drop much below the current pressure in order to maintain the current 20% absorption of the galactic cosmic ray flux. Uh, we don't want to leave Mars completely exposed to the cosmic ray flux. An alternate source for nitrogen is Venus if skimming the gas is possible. We don't know if that's possible or not. We'd probably take a nuclear powered skimmer vehicle. Um, number five is Institute of Search for Fluorine Minerals on Mars and ramp up industry run by the Mars settlers to produce a set of fluorocarbon gases, about six or eight of them, which each gas blocks one spectral air uh, line of, of the infrared radiation, which for the heat radiates from the surface of Mars out into space. Uh, and if you do, you produce enough of that, you can keep Mars a lot warmer than it is. If we, it depends on how much. It's a combination of the uh, the sunshade, the the, the 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 mirror, 
which would be at, at Earth, Mars Earth L2 and the, and the preferred carbon gases. The reason we want to start warming up at a certain point, once you get rid of, once you warm it up, before you get rid of the CO2, all the CO2 is gas, it'd be much harder to get rid of it. Uh, you can't breathe if you gave Mars magically an oxygen to nitrogen atmosphere right now. You couldn't breathe it because the amount of CO2 is too much. You'd, you'd, you'd try to pass out. Just like being in a closed room with no, with no uh, CO2 removal. Uh, next one, you need, you need a search for fluorine minerals and ramp up the industry to produce the set of perfluorocarbon gases. Once the Mars inventory is down to 3 trillion tons, you start releasing the needed amount of the gas mixture to keep what will be the equatorial and temperate zones free of snow and ice during the summer to prevent Mars turning into snowball Mars. If you've heard of snowball Earth, we had that 700 billion years ago. For millions and millions of years, there was no life on the surface. Uh, it was all just ice. It would be like, like a planet completely covered with ice, except for the continental areas. All the oceans were covered with ice. Um, simultaneously, you'll begin production of the mining systems, fusion plants, and hydrolysis plants needed to produce 800 trillion tons of oxygen from Mars water ice. Once the temperature is high enough to prevent, this is number eight, to prevent snow from covering the planet, you begin to deliver nitrogen from Pluto, Triton, and other solar system locations, prevent craters from forming, and provide enough air pressure to eventually allow water to flow and rain to fall. Simultaneously, you begin operation of the hydrolysis plants and water ice mining operation, multiple sites, as many as 7,000 all around the polar caps of Mars to produce and release the needed 800 trillion tons of oxygen probably over the period of about 200 years. Again, it all depends on how many plants they build. You build uh, half as many plants that take 400 years. It's up to them, the people in charge them. Um, when, when the ice coring op is operation is completed to save the climate data, um, the ice from the polar caps can, be, can then be mined just the same way the area around the polar cap. And that, you, that way you will have saved all those ice cores probably uh, in some location where it's constantly below freezing. Um, could, be, could even initially be below the, um, uh, the behind the sunshade or, or, or in the asteroid belt where, where, where the ice cores won't melt at all. Then you want to capture and store a significant amount of the hydrogen byproduct for later use in industry. You can use hydrogen to extract uh, um, uh, iron from, uh, from uh, uh, iron ore, for example. Uh, this probably would also be stored behind the, uh, the mare-shaded uh, Mars Sun L2. When there's enough oxygen and pressure for animals to breathe, the land and ecosystems with animals and plants and some of the islands that we will be formed in the bodies of water. And you test the aquatic ecosystems and some of the smaller crater lakes before releasing them into the larger bodies of water. There will be small bodies and large bodies. Many of them will be crater lakes, like the one up in, uh, uh, what is it, Oregon or Washington? Yeah, Crater Lake in Oregon, uh-huh. But these will be much larger. Some of the craters, like, are 100 miles across 
several hundred miles across. In the case of Hellas, probably the, the bottom of it will be over a thousand miles across. Hey, John. Yeah. Let me interrupt you a minute. Listeners, I have posted his sequence for full terraforming, which he is talking about, on the blog right now. So there are 17 uh, sequences for uh, this document, and they're all posted on the blog as of this minute. So you can follow along with him or maybe uh, uh, generate more questions if you're, if you're looking at them and, and you uh, can see where he's at. I just wanted to call your attention that the document is now up on the blog. Sorry, John, go ahead. Okay, so uh, let's see. So you're going to be storing some of the CO2 and some of the hydrogen as, as probably either liquid or dry ice, or, or the hydrogen would probably have to be stored as a liquid hydrogen behind the mirror so it won't uh, turn into a gas and be lost. Um, so you're, you're going to be te testing ecosystems in the Mars climate in different areas to see how the animals and plants behave together on land and in the water. We don't know what the salinity of the borealic ocean will be. That will be the area covering the northern third of Mars and the area around the North Pole, which was blown away by this impact that created the We can call it the borealic impact, if you want. Um, so then you... Uh, then you have to decide eventually how much nitrogen pressure you want. If it turns out that the fires are too, are too strong, you would keep on delivering nitrogen from different sources until you had enough nitrogen to equal probably what you have on the Earth, which is five parts of nitrogen to one part of oxygen. But you see, they would have to determine that using experiments and pressure chambers and, and, and see how, what would happen. If you take a, a piece of iron wire and heat it hot, red hot in a, in a blowtorch and stick it into a test tube of pure oxygen, it will instantly burn like a sparkle until there's nothing left. So you don't want that to happen to Mars. Um, okay, the next one is to shift the nitrogen delivery system to delivering water from asteroids. Remember, asteroids are about ten times closer than Pluto. So... You don't need to go to Pluto to get water. You can get water from, from uh, the asteroid belt. Perhaps some asteroids will be in the middle of the belt, and some will be some of the asteroids, which are asteroids that are mostly ice, be in the outer belt. Um, and you do, do the, you deliver that the same way you deliver the nitrogen horizontally so that everything breaks up and is turned into a gas by the atmospheric pressure in the upper atmosphere of Mars and forms no craters at all. Mars has plenty of craters already, which will be forming uh, lakes all over the planet. Um, let's see. Then you begin the general release of the tested ecosystem biota, plants first and animals, and the major land areas and into the Borealic Ocean and probably also into the Hellas Sea and probably into the Argyre Sea. The Argyre is big, big enough to be probably called the sea. That's in the southern hemisphere. It would have lots of islands. The, the Hellas probably wouldn't have any islands unless you had a very, very shallow sea. The oh, Hellas basin is like eight or nine kilometers deep, but you wouldn't need to see that deep, believe me. That might be one of the first places you can live on Mars because the pressure in the bottom of Hellas would be double what the pressure is in the rest of Mars. So maybe only 50 or 75 years into the terraforming, 
you might have enough pressure and help us to actually live there. You have plants and animals to be released. Uh, you eventually decide how high the Borealic Ocean and Hellas Sea water levels should be. You continue the deliveries of water ice until desired water levels are reached, but this might take over a thousand years. But there's no hurry, because Mars already has an incredibly large amounts of water, and it's all going to melt. Form, uh, in, some, in fact, some areas, you're going to have a collapse of the surface, because there'll be so much ice underground, like like uh, melting all the permafrost in Alaska. That's sort of what would happen. So you just have to know where to build and, not, and where not to build. Um, so that's, that's the sequence. And uh, I'm sure other people will come up with a refinement. But I've never seen a really good step-by-step uh, sequence of this. What's the, what kind of timeline do you think it takes to accomplish this? For the release or for the whole terraforming process? For the whole process. Okay, for the process, the physical process of providing an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere as I've described it, with the number of uh, uh, with the amount of equipment and the number of fusion plants and uh, hydrolysis plants, roughly 200 years. Um, and and if again you build if you build 14,000 fusion plants, you could do that. You provide the oxygen in a one century. Some people might even be alive, or if they have life extension, would certainly be alive when they got through. If they did have as many as 3,500 fusion plants and hydraulic plants, it would take 400 years. It's just a simple, simple matter of numbers. So it all depends how badly they want to get the get the job done, and how scared they are that somebody is going to blow up the earth or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, there might be uh, gray goo being released on Earth, and they might try to uh, save everything from the Earth if that was if that was happening. You have a. Um, <clears throat> let me read you an email that you have. Have okay. Uh, Fred is in Atlanta, and he says, "Is there any consideration how, along with the terraforming of Mars, to somehow have Mars represent one G instead of point three eight? No, uh, that that's not physically possible. Uh, if you want to have. Uh, rotating settlements in orbit around Mars, you can have a 1G environment. But try to, bit, to make a 1G environment Earth, uh, with Mars itself. You'd have to import material from a neutron star and keep Mars from collapsing into that material. I think that would be very dangerous uh, just to increase the gravity. We don't need to increase the gravity. However, because the gravity is only 38% of what's on Earth, uh, it could, there could be a problem with people and animals adapting to live in the low, in the lower gravitational environment. So, what, there's several different ways of doing that, of adapting to it. One way is with the, is with the, with the, uh, exercise equipment, which I think is, people will get bored of. The second way is in your body, there are protein and hormone levels that reacts to changes in bone mass and muscle mass. We are gradually revealing what all the, uh, the um, chemical signals in the body are to control how much uh, new bone and new muscle mass is being created. When somebody's exercising, they're creating new muscle mass, for example, and bone mass. 
So we'll gradually learn how to do that, and, and it, probably within a few decades or sooner, we'll learn how to get people voting their muscle mass pills or even uh, program into their genetics to do it automatically. Any baby born on Mars might be genetically modified to do that automatically, and uh, and that would take care of the problem. Uh, for the animals, you might have to do the same thing, modify the animals with this very small adjustment uh, to in terms of reacting to the gravity. Uh, to, if, we'll find out. Fish and animal, aquatic animals probably would need absolutely no modification. If you had seals, the seals would have a much easier time moving around on the beach in Mars gravity than they would in Earth gravity. They don't have, their legs are obviously not designed for tra long travel over the, over the land. Uh, if you had penguins living in Mars, uh, which could be quite possible if they had a, 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 southern, a south polar ocean around one of the excavated uh, sites of the kilometer deep uh, water, uh, which would fill that hole in where the water used to be, um, they would have a much easier time walking around. So it all depends on what kind of animals you're dealing with. If we can warm ours up, you could possibly duplicate at least temperate zones and arctic zones over Mars, it may be possible to warm it up enough to have a narrow tropical zone, a wider temperate zone, and a, and a wider Arctic zone. We don't know yet well, how much, how warm it'll be possible to warm it up. And some of the other interesting things would be how you um, introduce the organisms. So the first thing you'd want to probably introduce as soon as you had liquid water forming in Mars, would be in introducing blue-green algae, also called cyanobacteria, because they are basically a bacteria that can photosynthesize. These bacteria can live with no oxygen, but they produce oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis. They don't need it, but they can produce it. So you could do that much sooner. Just the moment you had liquid water inwards on Mars, you could introduce the blue-green algae because of eventually things would feed on it and it to create an ecosystem. Uh, you probably want at least 10% oxygen level in the air. Uh, that'd be about 0.3 pounds per square inch of, of oxygen before you could do things like that. Uh, that would be uh, allowing uh, low oxygen organisms that, that would be able to grow. Um, that would be probably certain kinds of aerobic bacteria in single-cell eukaryotic algae, where the, each cell is in direct contact with the oxygen dissolved in the water. You don't get as much oxygen in water because it's, the water is dissolved in the oxygen, and they have, the fish have to have gills, and the organisms have to, like sharks, have to pump the water, pump their gills all the time, and fish do, to, to, to breathe. So, they, so or, or like um, dinosaurs, uh, and birds have a more efficient breathing system than mammals actually do. So that's how they get, get so much energy out of it. Uh, by the time you have uh, about uh, a third of current oxygen levels, you probably get some multicellular animals, and typically aquatic ones. And then 
once you get up to 2 PSI, you can have uh, a multicellular and larger land animals start to appear. And you, uh, these would be things that you would test in a small scale to see whether they can survive. And then once your oxygen level reached the proper number, then you could release them when they wouldn't just asphyxiate. And, of course, the animals and fish and plants wouldn't be released until there's enough plant masses accumulated so the fish wouldn't just eat it all up and then there wouldn't be any plants left. So you have to wait for a while, in whether it's on land or in the water, to release the animals and fish. Uh, so you have sufficiently large uh, aquatic and, and land plant growth to, to, to sustain them. John, I have another email for you. Uh, yeah. This is from Dr. A.J. Kathari, and he says, Why not terraform the moon first? It is smaller with no CO2 removal issues. Well, the problem there, you'd, you'd have to either build a bubble around the moon, uh, in effect, a, 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 an atmospheric bubble, say 10 kilometers above the surface, uh, to keep the atmosphere. Because otherwise, you'd be, you'd be uh, adding the gas as fast as it leaves. The atmosphere of Titan, which uh, is way far away from the sun, very cold, is like 100 kilometers or more high, maybe 200 kilometers high. If you try to do that with the moon, where the gas is much hotter, whatever gas you add to the moon would leave just about as quickly as it as it uh, as stayed there. So, but you could encapsulate the moon, but then you still have to do deal with it with the two week long night and the two week long day. You'd have to have a mirror to warm half of the moon at night, and you'd have to have a sunshade to warm the other half during the day, or it would cook. As, and the moon, as it is now, it goes through a temperature cycle of 500 degrees Fahrenheit, 250 above at, at night and 250 below it, or I mean, below at night and above it during the day. So that, that would be a really difficult task. I'm not sure whether it's worth it, especially if you want a lot of, of airless industry to operate on the lunar surface. You have another email from Adrian in San Diego. Me and most living things just love the flavor of perchlorate and sulfate-infused sparkling water. Oh, okay, but now, where on earth can you easily find perchlorate? Ever heard of the Atacama Desert? It's so dry there in areas that not even bacteria can live on the surface. You put the the surface feed there on a petri dish, put it in a in a, in a, uh, in a place where the bacteria would grow. You don't get any growth at all. So, um, really, uh, the, the the point is that why don't we have perchlorates in our soil, and like in the Sahara Desert, because perchlorate is very soluble. It, if it washes into the ocean. Various kinds of bacteria exist there that would eat the, the perchlorate and turn it into a non-toxic material. Remember, well, the ocean has lots of chlorine and lots of sodium in it because that's what salt is. So you have chlorine ions and sodium ions, and the perchlorate is not a problem when it's washed into the ocean because it gets eaten. 
Now we can finish with the list of provisos. So I'll go through my list of provisos. First of all, you need fusion power to do any of this stuff. Uh, the human economy in the solar system or on Mars needs to be large enough for the effort. The cost over the construction period would need to be accurately estimated. There must be some level of public or private support for the project. Construction equipment to take place over multi-decade period of time because the amount of equipment you need is very large. Replicator systems would greatly reduce the cost of the system itself. The timing and the start of the operation is important. If you have replicator systems already, then you can go ahead sooner. Uh, the source and levels of heat emissions at the fusion and hydrolysis sites need to be identified. Also, damage the equipment from heating could occur more active heat control and dispersal systems. The most efficient hydraulic systems adaptable to such a large project should be selected. There should be priority and reduction in hydrolysis plant mass and wiring mass where you're taking the power from the power plant and taking it over to the hydrolysis plant. It is such talking about such a huge amount of electricity that you'd want a good design for that to reduce the wiring mass. The non-heat type fusion power conversion methods should be investigated before starting design in case they, they figure out a way to do that. That is to take the fusion energy and make power out of it directly rather than using heat engines uh, from, the, from the heat produced by the fusion plant. Uh, the north and south polar layers of ice deposits on Mars should have a guarantee of protection uh, for the climatologist so sufficient ice pouring proper storage of ice cores done by climate experts so we get a sufficiently good record of the past Mars climate information. Once this is done, the polar ice caps to then be mined directly for the water ice in them. The minimum or necessary amount of coring, coring will certainly be disputed between the scientists and the engineers. Nitrogen air pressure and oxygen generation should come first large bodies of open water can wait or it's, it's Mars ice melts all by itself. So that's, that's sort of a, uh, a summary of what all the different steps you have to do. And again, if you set this up, if you set an ecosystem on, up on Mars, the atmosphere on Mars without further human intervention should last 100 million years. So that's longer than the hill... Uh, uh, 300 times longer than the human species has existed. If our species is 300,000 years old. I have another email, probably the last email of the day, unless somebody really wants to hurry. Uh, Connie is in Houston, and uh, Connie says, um, have you ever talked to Elon about any of this? Why do we not hear Elon, who is the champion for going to Mars, talk about terraforming. Well, right now, I think when Buzz Aldrin was in Austin uh, about, I don't know, five or ten years ago, giving a talk probably at the, at the uh, uh, big, big event they have in the spring, and he told the audience, My, uh, Elon is a transportation guy right now. When the transportation problem is solved, it is when they have a fully operating 
uh, Starship launch system, which is a booster and this Starship upper stage and the launch tower and all the other parts of it, the delivery of all the repellents, and the FAA is cooperative, and they have a, a multiple set of multiple launch sites where they can launch thousands of Starship uh, uh, rockets from, uh, then he will become a, a, a terraforming guy, but not until. Is that a reasonable answer? In other words, he's focused on the current problem, and will he focus on it until the problem is solved? But then he will have to make a rapid switch to be a, to be a, a, a Mars peddler guy, and then at some point it'd be still like a Mars terraforming guy. So yeah, but he, he really is very busy trying to run all these different businesses all at the same time. No, I I talked to him uh, back in 2009, which I think is 14 years ago, when very very briefly when we gave him our Von Braun Award which is one of our top two awards for putting the, being the first company to put a satellite in orbit using a rocket to put the satellite in orbit. And people said, no, a private company could never do that. Only the government could do that. Well, guess what? The Elon, is, with his Falcon 9 rocket, is the one that's putting the most tonnage in, in orbit by, of anybody, period, for the whole world. And he's getting the rockets back to boot. He hasn't had a recovery failure for a couple of years, I guess. When you, uh, John, when when you present this material at conferences to other people, what kind of feedback or reaction do you get? It's kind of mixed. Saying that there's the people who think that terraforming is grandiose. We just live on Mars in pressurized habitat and and live underground because of the, of the GCR flux. If you had, I said, you had one-tenth as much nitrogen as we're talking about. No, I think much less than that. Um, that, oh, that alone would stop a lot of the, G, the GCR flux. I think 500 uh, 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 trillion tons of, of uh, nitrogen would stop the, stop the, uh, the GCR flux. Uh, but you still need the oxygen to be able to breathe it. So you need some oxygen and some hydrogen, and we need to figure out the best ratio of nitrogen to oxygen for, for Mars. Um, Adrian has another note from you. It seems that it would be easier that before colonization of Mars, a few well-dedicated, good-sized comet impacts would be a lot quicker and would do most of the terraforming needed. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but that's the last thing we want to do. Uh, and out, when that comet sighting spring came by a few years ago, we were terrified that it would hit Mars and send Mars into a thousand-year-long nuclear winter. That's the last thing we want to happen. It would be Mars has plenty of craters already. If we had an asteroid or comet impact on Mars right now, when we start, start, want to start landing on it, uh, in addition to that, there'd be debris all over the inner solar system from such a large impact. How do you suppose all those Earth rocks got to Mars and all those Mars rocks got to Earth? Giant impact. But the about five or ten million years after a giant impact, the solar system is a much more hazardous place to travel in. Let's put it that way. Eventually, the they all get they all hit something 
and and are absorbed by by the by gravity, uh, making them hit planets and things. But it wouldn't be it would be a very bad bad day if that were to happen. We would definitely want to prevent an asteroid or comet from hitting Mars. We don't we don't want to damage Mars. We want to make we want to make Mars alive. And if it was alive in the past, we want to make it alive again. All those animals and plants alive that are on Earth. Judy has a, and, and this will be the, the last email, uh, Judy is in Los Angeles, and she says, I am one of the folks who does not believe in terraforming, but rather we would be better off doing protection of Earth to make sure that we never needed a backup planet. What's wrong with that idea? Well, suppose you have a, a new uh, uh, Bin Laden in Afghanistan in a cave, a thousand feet underground, with a small biology lab, uh, and he's make, he's busy making gray goo or or a or synthetic bacteria or something, which will gobble up all of the life on Earth. So we don't know if gray goo is possible. But nobody can prove right now that it's impossible. So there's a, well, suppose you had a, uh, a super volcanic eruption and all the humans on, on the Earth starved to death. I don't see the government putting away the storage of grain for the, in the seven ten years. It's more like 700 ten years. Uh, and in case we have seven lean years, which would be caused by a a volcanic eruption like Yellowstone or one, or Toba or one of those, something of that scale. Like the one right near, uh, uh, um, uh, what is it, uh, in Italy, There's, uh, where, where they get the, the Pozzoli, right near uh, um, Naples. If that thing let go, everyone in Naples would die. They're, they're, they're right next to a giant caldera system. If that let go, it would be catastrophic. Uh, any other concluding comments? Well, I just, you know, what the point of what we're trying to do here is to explore with, you know, rel- with relatively simple uh, um, e- uh, exploration in terms of checking the numbers, making sure the numbers add up, to see what's physically possible to do with our current physics and, and, our, and our, remember, if the, if the, the 13 colonies had been asked to build the interstate highway system in, say, 1800 or whatever, they couldn't have do it. One, they did not know yet how to make modern concrete. And two, the, the, the scale of their economy wasn't large enough to, to, do, to have that kind of expenditure. Now we can have uh, gravel trucks and concrete trucks mining limestone, travel all over the, the country, Bringing, bringing in, and energy bringing to, to run the concrete plants. So con- making concrete takes a lot of energy as well as a lot of limestone so, uh, and gravel and so forth. So it was a, if, you, if you may want to read about the Roman concrete, they recently discovered that they made Roman concrete that can, it's much stronger and lasts much longer than our modern concrete because they took the, sli- the lime, the quick lime, and they mix directly with the concrete mix, with the pozzoli, the volcanic material. And then the, the, uh, some of the Roman buildings are completely intact or else they're almost 2,000 years. 
So, and they, and they don't, didn't have any rebar in them either. So it's quite amazing how strong this stuff is. And we're, we can now learn how to make concrete as strong and last as long as Roman concrete. We're, we're, they're, they're working on it right now. Okay, well, John, listen, I appreciate your returning to the, to the program, and thank you uh, very much for doing this. Listeners, um, this new headset that I've been working with, well, I've decided I'll never use it again. It's, it's really horrible, and uh, I, don't, I hope it's not too bad for you, and I hope most of what I'm hearing is not on the, uh, on the archive recording, but it, but it may be. Even provides feedback. I don't, I don't understand that. Um, but um, rest assured it will not be used again and I will send it back to the company saying it's unacceptable, but thank you for letting me try it. And, John, we appreciate it and look forward to uh, another visit from you down the road, and uh, we thank you very much for being with us today. Okay. So, listeners, uh, again, that's it for today. For Tuesday, do check to confirm that the guest that is written up and planned is the guest or if we've gone to a backup that I have uh, sitting in the wings and, and ready to go. So, um, and then all of the other guests coming up are on the newsletter. If you have anyone you would like to suggest for an August date, uh, please send me the information, and, and I'll be happy to include them in the invitations I send out this last week of July. Uh, again, thanks to all of you who called and who emailed. Thanks to John Strickland for uh, being with us and for giving us lots of information. And uh, everybody have a great rest of the weekend and a terrific week coming up. Uh, also, remember, please keep looking up. It's always better to look up than down, I think. Um, anyway, uh, goodbye from John, goodbye from David, and goodbye from the space show.